Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. Welcome everyone. Welcome everyone here to the Table Dallas, whether you're joining us in beautiful Mill Street House in downtown OTL, as they call it now, Old Town Louisville. We're glad that you're with us, whether you're joining us here live or whether you're joining with us later on somewhere around the world. And we do have listeners all around the world via our podcast. We're glad that you're with us as we continue our series this new year entitled Perplexing <coughs> Texts. Perplexing Texts. So for those listening maybe for the first time via podcast or here for the first time, if one of you were trying to explain to someone, okay, what is it that we're studying? In other words, you were trying to explain the whole idea behind perplexing texts. How would you explain it to someone who hasn't been here for the last three or four weeks? Anybody? How would you share it? Anybody want to explain it? Yeah. Some of the looks are great. The looks just go... Maybe. Yeah, all you can do is give a face, right? Just give that face for, obviously. Verses that make you say, huh? Yeah. Oh, I like that. Verses or texts that make you go, huh? Or huh? I think diving, yeah. diving in and unpacking the, the sections that we might be more inclined to just kind of skip over or gloss over. Or right. even not read altogether if you're in a lectionary. I like that. Yeah, good. You, you hit both, right? That we might just skip over because... Well, they're uncomfortable for us, or they're something that we don't quite understand, or in our tradition as Presbyterians, right, for years we used the lectionary and worked our way through the lectionary, and we watched how lectionary will actually literally slice out sections of the story, we saw that the first week, and like move it aside, and like, well, you know, you're going to read the first three verses, and then you're going to skip to verse 10, and then everything that happens from 4 to 9, which is the stuff that makes you go, huh? huh? They just kind of like, oh... I don't know. Can we call that like the Jeffersonian effect? Like, you know, Thomas Jefferson was famous for cutting out in his Bible the parts he didn't like. Did you know that? Yeah, no, there's a Jefferson Bible. Yeah, right, right. They just, just cut out the parts they don't like, right? So good. Anybody else? Explaining perplexing text. Anybody? No? And so last week, we had a great story, right? We had this great story at the beginning. Um, the prophet Elisha is beginning his ministry, right? And he has some small thing that he does with some water, but basically his introductory statement is that he's on his way to Bethel, right? Some of you remember this, who were with us last week. He's on his way to Bethel. He's going to um, be the prophet of God for Israel there, and he's met on the way by a group of children. That's what the, our original King James translations, a lot of NIV said, who started making fun of him. Why? Because he was bald, right? They said, go away, go on up, go away. And what was Elisha's response? He cursed them in the, he name, cursed of them in the name of God, upon which then God sent out two she-bears who mauled these 40 children. <laughs> this is one of my favorite And you were too. So you need to go back and listen to the podcast. <laughs> right? But when we, when we looked at it, I told you, I summarized for you last week. That almost every commentator that you read on it does some sort of, and I understand, we've talked about the four senses of scripture, we understand that, right? A pure on moralizing of the story, which was like, you know, you need to teach your children to have better manners kind of thing. And what we realized was, is we did the context and we looked at Bethel, 
and we looked at some of the language and translation, we discovered that, yes, they could have been children, but more likely in the context, that word, na'ar, also can mean a priest. And so we know what's happening at Bethel in that time. There's worship of Baal going on there. And so these are this is a mob of young, really um, enthusiastic young priests for Baal who are basically taunting and challenging Elisha and saying, get away from here. We don't want anything to do with you, Right. So this is a battle, this was the battle between, that's been going on for ages, between which of the Elohim is going to be Yahweh, the, the Lord Most High, right? And these worshipers thought, well, Jeroboam the king puts in this worship, and now in that context, it's a little better, it still bothers us a little bit, right? But we worked our way through that text to an understanding, all right? Well, we're going to do the same this morning in Numbers chapter 11. Hopefully this one isn't quite as perplexing to us. I mean, because it doesn't have, quote-unquote, young children involved. Being mauled by lions. Oh, sorry, by bears. Uh, by bears. That would, be, that would be something, right? So as I like to say, today's text for me is simultaneously one of the most humorous, sad, and perplexing texts all at the same time. It's like a trifecta for me. In the one sense, it's sad because it's, it's really a pretty unflattering and embarrassing moment, I would say, for the people of God. And then it's humorous when, and we won't look at too much detail of this, but it's humorous when you look at the exasperated response of Moses and God's almost comical <coughs> solution to the matter. What's the verse again? It's just Numbers 11. We haven't started. We'll start at 1, sorry. It'll be, we're going to work our way through. And then, until you read the end of the story, and then you see that all that transpires in the text, when you add it all together, it makes you kind of go, huh? Like, what are we supposed to do with this? This sounds like, are you ready? Here's the title. This sounds like a God who is passive-aggressive. So the title today is A Passive-Aggressive God? Question mark. Notice I put the question mark. I'm not making a statement. I'm not making a statement, but that's where we are. All right, so number's 11. What? Yeah, I'm looking at it like, uh, you know, we saw that what week one, somebody reaches out to stop the Ark of the Covenant from falling down the hill, and God immediately smote them dead. So... We have something to think about. All right, so background. Numbers 11, let me give you just a little bit of background. All right, Numbers is a historical book. It's telling the story of Israel, particularly as they as they come out of Egypt. They've, they've exited, ex, exited, the book of Exodus. They've left Egypt, and they are en route to, God has been bringing them to, a million plus strong of them, toward this land that he's promised Abraham generations ago. All right, so they're in route. It's been about a year or so in our text since the Israelites left Egypt. They've, they've experienced that delivery from the plagues. They've witnessed the incredible parting of the Red Sea where they crossed over on dry land and everyone behind them um, was wiped out. They've entered into a covenant with Yahweh, although you might say kicking and screaming because you remember what happened at Mount Sinai, right? So at Mount Sinai, they're entering into the covenant. Moses goes up, and while he's gone for 40 days, the people decide, eh, God's gone. So they make these, the golden cat, you know that whole story, right? So that's all behind us. That debacle is behind us. They've been provided for miraculously throughout this entire journey, right? They haven't been in want of anything. Walking through the Negev Desert, I mean, like, there's nothing that's 
they could have done on their own to, to survive in this environment, right? And so obedience, at least on the surface, has been reestablished, and it's time to keep moving toward that promised land. And that's where we pick up the story in Numbers chapter 11. And we're going to kind of break it down in sections. We don't have time to go through every verse, verse by verse, but there's some key areas I want us to focus in on. And um, as you know, here at the table, we like to just kind of interact one with the other, because I'm going to ask you a series of what I hope are good leading questions. Uh, no, that's not good. That's not, that's not what you want to say. Leading says, I expect you to have a certain answer. I'm going to ask you, I hope, provocative questions. Prompts, thank you. Prompts, and let's see where it goes. Somebody go ahead and read for me. Uh, numbers 11, 1 through 3. Saji's back, so I guess he gets to read. <laughs> When the people complained intensely in the Lord's hearing, the Lord heard and became angry. Then the Lord's fire burned them and consumed the edges of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire subsided. The name of that place was called Taborah because the Lord's fire burned against them. Another Sunday school story, right? <laughs> I mean, Don't this is one we hit in Sunday school. Nancy, you taught this in Sunday school, didn't you? To the little children. To the little children. <laughs> exactly. So what stands Don't out to me? Just read. This is the introductory three verses. Don't complain. Yes. <laughs> so you've already gone to the application piece, which is, all right, don't complain. But let's think about it for a minute. What, what do you notice in this text? What are maybe some of the words, the phrases, the actions that stand out to you in this text, and then maybe why? Well, I, would, I would say that it's interesting that they indicate that the people were complaining within God's hearing, because I think we tend to assume that he hears everything. Yeah, so that, that part stood out to me as well. It's like, so he's in, remember now, he's been traveling in their midst, right? So they have the tabernacle, so you've got this smoke, you know, the fire at night and the smoke by the daytime. And so he's, in, he's with them and he gets this anthropomorphism, I said it right, I think, where he's got hearing and he can hear them. And as soon as he hears them complaining, what does he do? <laughs> Sends down fire to burn them up. This wasn't any like normal complaining either. This was intense. That's an interesting word. So it's like, uh, what would be the difference between complaining and intense complaining? Intense. They never stop. Never stop complaining the entire time. Everything. Everything is wrong. Everything, right? Good. Anybody else? Maybe just whining. Totally rude and sorry. Sorry, Peter. Go ahead. Not just whining continuously, but totally rude, aggressively, inappropriate, like some kids do. It's almost, it's almost like if you read it, it almost sounds as if they know that God is hearing them, and so they're, they're almost being like that rude guest that's, that you normally would just kind of complain quietly, but they're making sure you know that you serve me food with gluten, don't you know I'm gluten-free? Yeah. Kind of, I'm just picking that. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, right? So I was going to say, it, the difference between like me complaining over here versus me making sure that everybody, everybody hears knows. it. Yeah. This, this is also the uttermost parts of the camp, which would be the border. The, this would be the, the um, people who weren't part of the 12 tribes. They, they were the ones that either got... Uh, 
chose to proselytize themselves. Do you proselytize yourself? Yes. Or they left because, let's face it, uh, Egypt's economy was worthless by the time that God got done with them. So they're kind of going, eh, let's go with, with the Israelites because we've seen what the Lord has done. Right. You know, we'll just tag along with yeah. them. Well, they, they are now starting to show their true colors. And that's going to show up as we continue yes, in the story. But great observation, great observation. Yes. Anything else about this well, text stands out? Just in commenting on that, because I read something a little bit different, but not that it was necessarily the people that were on the edges, but I got a, I, I'm envisioning like a large surface area, like so much so that it was like expanding to the edges. Okay. I don't know. Mm, I mean, that's the says, beauty of it, right? It's, it's a, well, my my version says it consumed them in the uttermost, which would right. mean okay. So that's yeah. outside burning the edges of the coop. But again, okay. So perplexing and uh, passive aggressive actions. You still go, okay. Maybe it's the outer edge, and it's some people who are maybe disgruntled, but still fire from heaven. I mean, it makes us go at least a little, right? Huh. But notice there's one other thing that stood out to me, like, um, it talks about, uh, I just lost my, my train of thought. Uh, let me see it real quick, Brian, right in front of you there. Uh, oh, notice who the people cried out to. Does that tell us anything? They're looking at him, I guess, like an, the authority over the situation. Daddy, he can get it. Yeah, sugar daddy or whatever. It's just interesting that their first response wasn't to, like, Oh, I'm sorry, God. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go to Moses, the intermediary, right? And maybe he can do something on our behalf. But does that suggest that Moses has done that in the past? They've asked him to do that many times. Mm -hmm. Like, he had to go and intercede on Sinai when he came back down and saw that they were worshiping. I mean, a lot of people died then, too, right? But he basically said, well, let's not wipe all of them out. Just wipe out some of them, and, mm -hmm. and hopefully everybody else will learn their lesson." Right? But here we're now almost a year later on, and it's still happening. Well, they know at the moment that Moses is in God's favor. So they right. know that they themselves, if they cried out to God, he might he might listen to them, but he's pretty PO'd down. Right. So it might be best to go to someone else who God actually likes and would actually listen to. Well, there, there's something to be said for that, right? <clears throat> Yeah. All right, well, let's keep going. Now, look at four through six, because this is where what Sherry was saying kind of, it kind of starts with this idea, at least in the storyline, okay? So, it's the outskirts, it's the fringes, it's not everyone. That's the way it kind of starts out, right? It's just a few people that, you know, that God just wipes out, and then, you know, before it consumes everyone, Moses, in, you know, Moses intercedes, and God stops the fire. He doesn't, like, consume everything. Right? So that's merciful, right, in this case. Now, four through six. So. The riffraff among them had a strong craving. Even the Israelites cried again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish we ate in Egypt for free, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Now our lives are wasting away. There is nothing but manna in front of us. So when you hear that word, our, our common English Bible translates it as riffraff. Um, that is, a, it's an interesting word. Um, what do you, before I explain the word a little bit, what, 
How does that make you feel when you hear that word riffraff? What comes to your mind? Troublemakers, Troublemakers rabble risers, rabble what? Rabble rousers. Rabble rousers. Yeah. <laughs> Automatically one of my five favorite words. Yes, that shows up in the Bible. Riffraff, right? Well, this is actually the word that is identified as these are the resident aliens. This is what um, Sherry was talking about. These are the, the non-Jews who are traveling with Israel, right? So they either proselytized or they've decided it's better to go. And I don't know why the CEB translates it as riffraff. Because it's almost, I mean, it's like the, uh, the immigrants. It's, it's almost like they're... Uh, like the writers in telling the story. Remember, this is all post-exilic writing, so they're, they're writing back to explain. It's almost like they want to make sure, I don't know, to, that the real culprits of the story, at least at the beginning, are the riffraff, are the immigrants, the resident aliens, the non-Jewish people. It almost feels that way, okay? So when we hear that word, right, it's actually more like a resident alien, these non-Jews, but notice... It's not just the riffraff. Notice what it says. It says the riffraff. That's kind of, I think, connecting back to what Sherry was saying, the outer edges that were, were there in the first three verses. But then it says something else. What does it say? Yeah, and the Israelites, right? And it says that these folks had strong craving. What comes to mind when you hear that in this context? They had strong cravings. They're tired of manna. They were tired of manna. They've been eating it for a while. I don't know how to put it in words, but the like human nature of being in want and selfishness, like okay. a, a, an inward pay, paying attention to what's Okay, good. We call it covetousness. Covetousness, okay. In the context here, Strong cravings. You think it's just referring to the the food, the lack of variety of food? Or I is think it, they're ungrateful. Certainly, there's a sense of ungratefulness. What's interesting is the word in Hebrew is ta'ava, T-A, tidla, A-V-A-H, ta'ava, and this word is the exact same word that described Eve when she looked at the fruit. Oh. Now we're getting somewhere, maybe, right? So it's the same word. So this craving is more than just food, isn't it? What's the craving here? This strong craving is? Self-satisfaction. Being satisfied with. Okay. Um, what's the word? Not satisfied. Is it more than that, though? Just a, a, a satisfaction? It's, it's deeper than that, isn't it? It's feeling like you deserve more. You deserve more? Or, I mean, in Eve's case, she's being deceived by the serpent, as we talked about on Thursday night. She's being deceived. This idea of, I'm not satisfied with where I am and my position. I want a different kind of position. I don't want to be depending on somebody else for my everyday existence. I mean, it's so I want to make sure that we understand the word that's chosen there could have just been they're hungry. Like, they're really hungry. Like, Chris texted me last night. I was coming back from watching the game. She's like, I am starving. Like, all capitals, right? Go to In-N-Out or whatever, right? So, but it's not that word. 
It's not that word. It's this deeper word. Like there's something going on deep inside of them that they're very unsatisfied. Being out of control. Being out of control. It's a heart issue. And notice. Because I said our lives are wasting away. They're they're feeling pointless. Like, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? Good. Notice that it says, who will give us meat to eat? That's a strange question to ask, isn't it? I mean, there's nothing in the story that says, I mean, you don't think they left Egypt without their stuff. They had animals with them. There was no prohibition that they couldn't eat the animals. They've been doing this for a year. There's no prohibition that they couldn't eat that, right? So what is the implication of that question? Who's going to give us meat? What is he saying? What are they saying? Well, if this God will not give us anything but manna, which God might? That's good. Great observation. Like So we're looking for another provider which in this instance would mean another Elohim, another God, obviously. This God, in essence what they're saying is this God who was powerful in Egypt, who brought us out, apparently is impotent in this area, because all he could do is give us this honey-tasting, crispy thing called manna, right? So maybe there's another God, Elohim, right, who can provide this for us. Do you understand? This is why understanding Elohim is so important. So they were shopping? They're basically going, we've crossed the border. It's apparent that this God maybe is not as powerful as we think. So who's going to provide for us? It's a question of like who's going to who's going to be our new provider? Who's going to be the one who does it? Because they're not satisfied. As we say, they're not satisfied. They're not satisfied with what's been provided for them, right? They could have provided the meat for themselves. So what's the purpose of the question? It's like basically submitting how like people can bid for my allegiance. It's an ultimatum almost. Say again? It's almost like an ultimatum. It feels that way, doesn't it? Does it feel like almost like an ultimatum? Like, alright, so who's gonna give us meat? Like you're either gonna give us meat or what? We're going somewhere else. Or we're going somewhere, we're gonna look somewhere else. That's essentially what's happening here. And I think that's important that we understand because on the surface, it does seem a little, at least slightly passive-aggressive on God's part. Is this the same group of people who the fire just came down on? I was thinking. The same people, yes, these people had experienced God's judgment being rained down on people who were complaining. And yet... And yet, they're still complaining. Here they are complaining again. But notice, they had herds, but they asked for what? Not just meat. They said, "Who's going to give us?" Uh, we remember what? The fish and the the cucumbers and the onions and whatever else was in there. We we remember, you know. Yeah, we're in a desert. I just think that's hilarious. We're in a desert, and we're asking for fish. That seems like a strange thing, except that when you remember, though, if you think about it, if you remember their history, I mean, they've just come out within the last year out of Egypt. That was probably the dominant protein source they had. You have the Nile and this beautiful tilapia that comes out of the Nile, and the Nile would flood, and, and they would dry this meat. I mean, it was it was prob- basically, when they're asking this or they're making that statement, it's almost like they're sitting down and they're kind of remembering 
what it was like in Egypt when they're asking for fish. Because like you said, Chris, they're in the middle of a desert. There's, there's not fish within miles of this place. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I don't think they're literally asking for fish and leeks and cucumbers. I think they're just comparing. Look at where we are now compared to what we came so remember the yes. So remember my question at the beginning of our entire start. So is God's best for us in the past or in front of us? This statement, we remember what it was like in Egypt. The good foods. I'll just call this the good foods that we had in Egypt. The good old days. The good old days, right? So let's pause for just a second and say, what exactly was their life? Like in Egypt? Is that what you were doing? Sherry, is that what you were getting ready to say? Okay, they, they got to eat freely. It, it, the, this is what it says in mine. And I'm sitting here going, okay, Pharaoh took their straw away. They went, He made them not be able to freely get straw anymore. Are you sure that you had free food if, if you had to go get your own straw? So I'm, I'm having issues with this. Uh, get a deep freely anytime you wanted and anything you wanted. Yeah, but there, yeah, I mean, it, it's there's there's a phenomenon that happens here in humanity, right? Because <coughs> let's just be honest, right? We think of memory like a mechanical photographing process, right? That that indelibly keeps that perfect picture of what happened in our mind, so that when we go for memory and we go to recall it. The picture is just like a slide that comes up in front of us because that's how we think of memory. But is that how memory really works? No. no. We tend to look at the past through rose-colored lenses. Call it rose-colored. We call it selective memory. It's like, it's like automatically when that slide or that picture comes up, it's like our internal Photoshop goes into full gear. And, yeah, you wipe out the fact that in the background, Sherry, I like that. In the background is the Egyptian guard beating people, right? So you get rid of that in, you know, wiped out in using the eraser tool or the lasso tool. You could just lasso an entire section out and go, see, it was so beautiful. Look at the fish that was on the plate and all of this, right? But that's human nature because we treat our brains like they're mechanical, but they're really not. And that's what they're doing. Call it selective memory. Call it... Uh, um, creative memory, exaggerated memory, any of those words, romanticize, we tend to do that, right? Yeah. Romanticize the past. So it's easy for us to think, man, God, was so, it was so awesome where I was in my, my spiritual walk with God in this past moment. It was so perfect. We didn't have anything going along. And now look at my life and all the challenges I have, but we have a tendency to romanticize. That's what they were doing, right? Is that fair to say? Our lives are wasting away. Really? Nothing in front of us. And there's nothing in front of us. Romanticizing the past, and we tend to exaggerate the problems of the present. Is that fair? You think that's what's happening here? So what essentially is their complaint about God and their food supply here? It's not what they want. It's not what they want. It's not what they feel like they deserve. What else? Yeah, he's not providing how they want him to provide. Right. And they're tired of manicotti, manna burgers, manna bread. <laughs> that sense, they're not exaggerating. You know, they just don't view themselves as in a survival situation right. versus a living right. situation. Exactly. That's a very good way of saying it. Right. As sick as the people were of manna, interestingly, Moses was equally as sick 
equally sick of the people that he was leading. We won't spend a lot of time here in 10 and moving beyond here, 10 through 17, for instance. Um, I want to point out one thing, though. I want to summarize it this way. I'll summarize. So Moses complains to God, and he tends to do this quite a bit. Um, he complains to God in the following, in the verses that follow about, you know, essentially, like, why, do you, why did you give me, these aren't my people, these are your people. And he goes down through a, a series of verses, right, where he just basically complains, to which I could summarize it in the famous phrase of my good friend Landrum Level, and I confirmed it with him last night. He said, basically Moses is saying, quote, did I take you to raise? End quote. <laughs> Which is what his grandma used to say to all of the next door neighbors who wanted to stay for dinner every time she was cooking biscuits and, and good, you know, southern jambalaya and, and all the great sausage. And she'd, say, she'd just look at him and say, did I take you to raise? Which is essentially what he said. Like, like, who am I? Why am I involved in all this? That's what that next section is. But I want us to focus in on God's response. Because they said, who's going to give us meat? And then God responds. Verse 10, excuse me, verse 18. 16. Make yourself holy for tomorrow, then you will eat meat. For you've cried in the Lord's hearing, who will give us meat to eat? It was better for us in Egypt. The Lord will give you meat and you will eat. But here we go. Here's this, to me, this is passive aggressive. I think, maybe. You won't eat for just one day. Or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but for an entire month until it comes out of your nose and nausea. You're going to vomit because you're going to have so much meat. Why? Because you rejected the Lord who's been with you and you have cried before him saying, why did we leave Egypt? That is a, that would be the best sermon title. <laughs> God causing you to vomit. I don't know, it's something like that. But... Is that not the definition of passive-aggressive behavior? You want meat? I will give you meat until you don't even want to see meat again. <coughs> Very funny story. <laughs> when we're working in Uganda, Chris and I will be over there, and for years, I've been going there for now 20 years, and, and um, for a while there, we would bring the some of the kids out, and we'd say, "Hey, would it be nice to, like give them like go out for a meal, right?" And you'll ask the kids, "Okay, so what's your favorite thing? You know, what's the thing you would want if you get to go out and eat? What's the favorite thing you want?" And without exception, they say, "Beans and rice." <laughs> Which, if you don't know, beans and rice is what they get, or beans and they don't say beans and rice; they say beans and and posho. Which is what they get every single day, twice a day, six days a week at school. That's their favorite because they don't know anything else. God's like, you want me? Here you go. You're going to get it not just two days, one day, two days, five days, right? So am I wrong in feeling like that feels a little passive aggressive? Are we okay with that? We feel like this is okay. Is it feel you're smiling? Passive aggressive. It's not out aggressive. It's like a parent whose kid, you know, okay, if you ask for ice cream one more time, all right, I'm giving you an ice cream. That's all you're gonna eat for the next month. It's like the parent who catches their kids smoking cigarettes. Yes. Smoking the smoke a whole pack. He makes them go one of the cigarettes. Now, but we do that. But let's be fair. When we do that, when we hear about parents doing it, there's a part of us, maybe, that goes, where you go? Yeah, that'll teach them a lesson. But there's a part of us, too, right, Rhonda, that goes, 
really? Do we want to? Do we really want them? You know, or you know, if we don't want them to be drink drinking to the point of excess, we're like, oh, you think you can handle this? Here we go, and just start start taking shots until they're like fall down drunk. Yeah. Right? There's a part of us that likes that idea, but there's a part of us that goes, yeah, like Nancy gave the look. She's like, eh, but do we want a god who does that? Just a thought to put in our head. It gets better. <laughs> All right, jump down now, um, Saji. Keep going. We're gonna read thirty. Through 34. Because like he said, he's going to provide for them meat. So much so that they're going to be tired of it. So 30 through 34? Yeah. Moses and Israel's elders were assembled in the camp. A wind from the Lord blew up and brought quails from the sea. It let them fall by the camp about a day's journey all around the camp. And about three feet deep on the ground. <laughs> then the people arose and gathered the quail all that day, all night, and all the next day. The least collected was ten homers, and they laid them out around the camp. While the meat was still between their teeth and not yet consumed, the Lord's anger blazed against the people. The Lord struck the people with a very great punishment. The name of that place was called Kibroth Atava, because they, they, there they buried the people who had the craving. Hmm, this is just getting <laughs> wonderful. I mean, am, am, I, am I unreasonable in thinking that if, if there was a pastor or a parent, I'm not saying they would strike their kids dead. But, I mean, and by the way, to be clear, yeah. when you're burying someone, yeah. mm -hmm. this plague killed them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Okay, go ahead. Well, I mean, I think most of us would not think this was a appropriate response. Most of us, I think, if our kids came and said, I'm sick and tired of eating this every single day, can we go get whatever? Most of us would probably accommodate. I know I would. So the, what you're, if I hear what you're saying, it's like, okay, so God could have heard their complaint. And he could have been like, you know what? It's true. A year of, of manna, if he miraculously provided manna, he could have miraculously provided something that wasn't manna yeah. that would also do the same thing, right? So right. part of us is saying, is that well, what I and none, of, and none of us would say that intensely complaining kids or intensely complaining people like <laughs> to be torched, you know, to the point where, you know, the edges of their homes are like a crisp. I mean, none of us would think, yeah, that's a good approach to it. Yeah. But it's not, it's something more. Uh -huh. Obviously, it's something more. Like and That's the, what we got to figure out, right? The it's, very last verse, 34, seems like a clue because it says they buried the people who had the craving. Mm -hmm. So it's more about this craving that we were talking about earlier. It seems like. Yeah. And that's why we have to read the stories. We have to think about it in context here. There's a very, it's a very interesting image. Okay, so this maybe this will help us. And I'm going to steer us because of time. All right. So two times, quail shows up in the first testament as it relates to Israel and the Exodus and the wanderings in Egypt. Uh, wanderings out of Egypt. The first one takes place immediately. After Exodus 16, when they get out, I believe it's Exodus 16, don't hold me to that, but I'm pretty sure it's Exodus 16, where they step out and God basically introduces manna to them. 
and quail, and he gives the same instruction, you will have exactly what you need for the day. So in the morning, in the evening you go out, you get your quail, in the morning you go and you collect the, 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 the manna, just enough for what? Day. One day, <laughs> unless you're on the Sabbath, the day before the Sabbath, then you would get enough for two days, and it would last. What would happen, if you remember the story, what happened, what was the promise, if you take more than you deserve or you should have? It went bad. It, it went bad, right? So that you couldn't eat it anyway. So, right, he was teaching this lesson, right? I'm going to provide for you. You'll have quail at night, and you will have manna the daytime. When the people ask, where's the meat? Where's the beef? Where's the meat? God says, it's been here all along. Every single day I provided it for you. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring in so much. I mean, that wind, that, by the way, that word in Hebrew is ruach. One of the ten Hebrew words every Christian should know. The breath, the wind, the breath, God's spirit blows, brings these, but not that they'd never seen quail or hadn't experienced that, but in quantities that they had never seen before, three feet deep. And notice how the people responded. Read it again. Or somebody read it. How did the people respond? They collected it, didn't they? They what? They were like collecting it. Yeah, but read how it's described. Collected it all day, all the next day, whatever. So, what's happening here? Storing it up. Now we're getting somewhere. The people are doing what? <coughs> Storming. It's another test. They're taking more than they need. It's, a it's, a, it's another revision to the people of God going, okay, here you go. You said you wanted meat. It's here. What are you going to do when I put so much in front of you that you have the ability to take more than you need or more than you deserve or more than you could possibly do anything with. Because the picture here is it comes out and everybody goes running to collect as much as they can. The problem with that is the people who go out and run as much as they can are the people who are identifying themselves as have this strong craving that I don't really like the way that God's providing for me. I don't like only having two quail available to me or whatever, whatever the number was that was available for me. I want to be able to control how much quail I want, when I want it, and all of that. You see what's being told in the story? So, so in the beginning, when they're asking where is the meat, did they just get lazy and they just didn't want to go collect the quail that was there? I think that the question that you're asking about where's the meat had nothing to do with meat or food or provision. It has everything to do with their questioning of uh, the power of God to provide something other than the slim pickings that they had. Every day. If that makes sense. I was just curious if they just got so lazy that they just wanted it provided for them. So no, I, they, I, they knew they had to go out each day and collect it. I think the key in this text to understanding it, I mean, it's still perplexing, it's still not as fun, but at least when you go, okay, story after story, time after time, God's been giving them opportunities, and he says, one last time, all right, here you go, I'm giving you exactly what you asked for, but are you willing to take just what you need and trust me to provide for you tomorrow, or are you not going to? And when those people went out and did that, their answer to that question is, we're not going to trust you, and God said, enough. Down comes his judgment. Now, none of us love judgment. We don't love the God of judgment, but he's there in the scripture. I have one last question. Yeah. Did the riffraff 
know that promise from God. Yes, because they were there. If they traveled with them, because they were the immigrants, they were, so yeah, they, they were there. They were around the people. They would have known everything that's happening. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly confident of that. They're not picking up people along the way in the desert. It, it's the people who came with them out of Egypt, and they were, they were bound to support those people anyway. That's, Correct. The, that's the agreement they had with the Israelites. Well, and what it seems like from the text because of the end of it where it says that they had gotten rid of the people with the strong cravings, it was almost like a cleansing of the population. Like, these people will not continue to procreate. And, and we know that, that, and that's a great observation, because we know that that's what's going to happen. Ever since the Valley of Sin, which is Exodus 16, the Valley of Sin, the reason they're still in the desert is because of all the complaining they've been doing, all the complaining they've been doing, right? So they're going to continue on, and we're going to see that God's like, you know what? Ultimately, none of these people are going to enter into the land except for Joshua and Caleb. I mean, you can hope that Moses, we, we might look at the Moses one in the future as perplexing about poor old Moses, mm -hmm. who then finally gets so frustrated that he beats a rock and God says, you don't get to go to the promised land yet. We'll deal with that one maybe in the future. But everybody else, one by one, down to the person, everyone who complained, Everyone who didn't believe and trust in God's provision, the ability to take the land that God was going to provide for them, ultimately never entered the land. They all died. So knowing that, that this is a repetitive, repetitive, does it make us feel any better about the text? And if so, what are the lessons for us? Is it still back to don't complain or God is going to strike you dead? Well, it seems like it goes back to what you were saying about Eve and the, and the fruit, right? So it's this sense of, the craving ultimately was to be like God. And if they're saying, you know, we're not happy with how you're providing, essentially they're wanting something they can never achieve. And if the, if the thing that's going to satisfy them is the kind of this equivalent to the knowledge of right. good and evil. I mean. Yeah, and, and Paul picks this up, right? In the Second Testament, where he talks about the strong cravings of humanity, right? And then Jesus comes and he offers himself as the bread of life. Will you be satisfied with what I have sent to redeem you? Or are you still going to continue to battle thinking that you're going to be able to overcome? I mean, that's the, I think that that word, ta'ava, in here is really critical for us to understand. That strong craving, because that's what it was that ultimately in the end, right, drove, drove God to respond the way he did. They are in direct rebellion. They want to be in God's position. They want to be the one making the decision. And God says, ultimately, throughout Scripture, that's consistent throughout the narrative, right? You're not God. I am. You're not. And the more you try, the more you're going to run up against my bad side. If you want to it seems like these stories reveal the extent of the human problem. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. thinking back to what Noah... The, the flood, and now these people, freed from Egypt, having seen their children slaughtered, still having complaining hearts, and also the deficiency of a, a leader even as great as Moses. I mean, he simply can't deal with the root of the problem, which is these people are always going to complain. And... I mean, to me, it's, it, it really shows how much we needed the person of Christ to deal with that ultimate problem. I mean, because frankly, I can sit here and judge these people, but the truth is, is I do the same thing. I mean, I would have been torched, 
30 times over. <laughs> and anyway. I don't see it as a human problem necessarily. I see it as human nature, human normal. I mean, that's the way we're made. We're incapable of otherwise, of doing other without God. And this is another perfect example of the difference between the law get, being given them, which is behave this way, but without the spirit, the ruach yeah. that we have to actually obey it. Yeah, exactly. I see what you're saying. That's beautiful. <coughs> Any other thoughts? Before? I think, too, that um, they had to get rid, God had to get rid of the people that were the ones with the strong craving because it started to bleed into the mm -hmm. Israelites because... I know I tell my kids, be careful of the company you keep because you are who you hang around with. And so as they're complaining, it starts to go into the Israelites and he, had, he wanted to do something about it because these are the chosen people and he's got to stop that. So he's got to figure out how to separate that So and say, if you continue that way, then this is going to happen. So let's get rid of these people so we continue on your journey and get us back in alignment to what it is that he said. It's still uncomfortable though. Right? Because mm -hmm. <laughs> here's my thing for, for me. Because we do the same thing every single day. Mm -hmm. yeah. But here's my thing. is that you've seen the parting of the Red Sea. Right. You, you know, he's giving you everything you need and you're still right. riping. And I, as a parent, that would get on my nerves and then we would have to deal with it. <laughs> I think we all agree that we could sympathize with how God is feeling and Moses is feeling with the people, right? What I'm saying, what makes me uncomfortable is I realize how quickly I'm in that same boat. That no matter what I've seen and what I've experienced, there's still a part of me that goes, I'm going to complain about this. And I'm like, oh, God could respond that way. But he's chosen instead to respond by putting the wrath he would have put on us, right? Using the good theological term on Jesus, his son, who stands in our place, right? Knowing, as Nancy said so beautifully, like there's nothing we can do on our own. By nature, we are complainers. Yeah. We are never satisfied with our position, with our lack of control. You fill in all the blank, and yet God says, "Here's my merciful action. I'm going to, I'm going to put my anger, my wrath, the judgment that belongs on you, on my son who stands in your place." And then we are able to then look at that and, and have our confidence in that being the reason why God accepts us into his family. Not because of our either ability to not complain yeah. or something, some other way of thinking we, we can gain entrance into his family. Excellent. Well, great work, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.